This is a Federal News Network podcast. The General Services Administration has been trying nearly everything it could over the past few years to prevent costly delays in the transition to its new telecommunications vehicle known as Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions, or EIS. But what many thought was inevitable, in fact, finally did happen. GSA is extending the deadline for agencies to move off the old networks contract before they get to EIS. In his weekly Reporter's Notebook, executive editor Jason Miller has exclusive details about this latest chapter in the saga, and he joins me now. And Jason, let's just begin with a quick reminder of about EIS, what it is, and why agencies are supposed to get off networks and on to EIS. The Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions, or EIS contract, is the latest of, I think, four now, Tom, that we've been through together. Uh, Massive telecommunications contracts, voice, video, data all being merged into kind of one network. And and really when, when EIS was put out there but from GSA and the Office of Management Budget, the goal was really network modernization, really move to the cloud, move to software-defined networking, get your phone systems off of POTS, you know, plain old telephone systems, right? And onto VoIP, voice over IP. And unfortunately, over the last four, five, six years, it's just been a slog. It's been very difficult. And, and GSA says, listen, you'll get better services, more better cybersecurity, and a ton of, of cost savings. Yet agencies have been really slow to move, and, and I think that the challenges are the same today as they were back in 2008, 2009, when they moved to the current contract called Networks. That's so, right, and from FTS 2001 and FTS 2000, from the FTS before that, which goes back to 1963, but I wasn't quite around for that one. All right, I was on this earth, but not around D.C. at that point. All right, so what's the new deadline now, and why did GSA go ahead and capitulate here and change it? Agencies were facing two specific deadlines. They had until March of of this year, 2022, to move 90% of all their services off of networks and onto EIS, and then they had to get to 100% by September. I think GSA, among other reasons, saw the handwriting on the wall and said, those deadlines are really going to be hard to reach, and we can't turn off existing services under the existing contracts. And those existing contracts include, Tom, the networks contract, which is the big one, but also smaller ones like the Washington Interagency Telecommunications System or WITS-3 contract or the local services contracts. Those GSAs or what they're doing is they're extending what they call the continuity of services contracts, meaning we will not shut you down if you don't move off. Initially, they were set to expire in 2023. What GSA has done is said, now you have an extra year of those services. So May of 2024, you can still continue to use those contracts with your current services if you're not off of those and onto EIS. Now, the reason why this is important is because GSA had said back in October of 2020 and 2021, we're going to no longer let you add new services to the existing contracts. Again, networks, WITS3, local uh, service contracts. What they're saying today is if you have services already on, we will let you continue. And I think that's a big difference than just extending the contracts. And GSA made it very clear to me that it's just the continuity of services contracts that we're letting that that the extension is happening. And have you heard from any would-be using agencies or the vendors that have a big stake in this multi-billion dollar deal? What are they saying about extensions and continuity? Not surprising, Tom. They have heard from them both. And yes, they're they're excited for this. I talked to one federal executive who requested anonymity because, of course, they were not a, allowed to talk to the press about this one specific topic. But they said, listen, we've been doing the best we can to stay on schedule, but we, there's a lot of impacts to us. And, and, and we're happy to have this extra time. This extra time will actually solve a lot of agencies' problems. I talked to another federal executive, again, running their agency's effort to move to EIS. And one of the things they said was, we think we will make it, but... 
this is very difficult. This is not going to be easy to get to that September deadline. And they also said, listen, GSA is, is making this a little painful on us. They're forcing us to go to our secretary and get the secretary to sign off that extension and then send it to OMB. So yes, they're extending these continuity of services contracts. But to do that, they're making us jump through some obstacles that are going to be tough on us. And I think GSA is trying to kind of make sure that this is not just a feel free to pass, go collect your $200, but really you have to think about why you want to and then explain it and justify it. And this all comes just shortly after the Fatara hearings, Federal Information Technology Acquisition Reform Act report cards. And that's always been a stickler transition to EIS for the past couple of years on those scorecards. There was a hearing on that. You were there. The GAO told House lawmakers that it's no longer a priority to transfer to EIS. When you look at the Fatara scorecard, you see of the 24 agencies that they look at, 15 of them have gotten F scores in this past December 2021 scorecard, meaning that there were less than 54% of their services were transitioned to EIS, and they were unlikely to meet the March 2022 deadline. And I think that was part of this impetus to get GSA moving uh, and, and create this extension to the continuity of services contracts. GAO at the hearing said, hey, we just don't think this is a priority, and that's why the delay is happening. And Tom, I think that rubbed some people the wrong way. I think it's not just, hey, this is not important for us. It's not a priority, but it's always a balance. It's a balance of mission needs and, and transition. It's a balance of costs to stay on the current contract and the cost, the expense to move to a new contract. The one federal executive I talked to said, listen, there's several things going on here. We have to make sure our mission is, is well served. But at the same time, we're also being asked to do things without funding. Then we're under a, a, a CR, the continuing resolution that we don't have new money to pay for this. Uh, and, and then on top of that, the acquisition timeline took a long time, and, and that that also has impacted a lot of agencies. I talked to another executive who told me they just got their contract awarded in the last six or eight months or so, so that's also causing challenges. So I think there's this confluence of issues that require GSA to just take a half a step back and say, yes, there are delays. Yes, there are delays out of all of our control, and yes, we should figure out a way to make this a little bit easier so we don't lose services that will impact the mission of agencies, which in the end, Tom, this is what this is about. It's not just about moving to EIS. It's not about modernizing your network. It's about really serving the mission. And I think GSA saw those hand, that handwriting on the wall. Congress and, and GAO will come down on GSA for not doing it right. But the first executive I talked to said, listen, I don't blame GSA for any of this. In, in many ways, GSA has all the uh, responsibility, but no authority. There's no teeth for them to say, you will do this. We can't make you do this. And the threat of shutting off services is a real threat, but they can only go so far because if your secretary calls the OMB chief of staff or the pres you know, president chief of staff said they're about to shut off my mission, who's going to win that argument, Tom, right? I mean, that, that's, the old, that's the old challenge that GSA has had over the years. A lot of this falls, I think, back to both Congress and to OMB to really drive this home, Not and then GSA is kind of caught in the middle. I don't think any of them understand that when you change the software basis of all of your communications, you have an enormous lift to get applications, databases, data centers, and clouds that you're using onto all of this and making sure it's all going to work. In the old days, you had to switch out PBXs and wiring and stuff. You don't do that anymore, but you do something else. And when it's software, in some ways, it's worse than hardware. And I think part of this also, Tom, is they're taking three contracts, right? The old networks. WITS 3 and the local services and merging them into one. In fact, I talked to Tony Bardo from Hughes Network Systems, and he pointed that out as one of those areas of like, you don't understand the complexity that GSA created 
by combining all those contracts into EIS. It's not as simple as just rip and replace, or as you said, change up a PBX. He also pointed to the fact that a lot of agencies were going down this path of like for like. And of course, Hughes is a big proponent of modernization, changing out what they want to do. But I think the, you know, the push from OMB, the push from GSA to modernize their networks also creates more complexity because it's because you don't want them to do one for one because that, that doesn't really get them where they need to go. But at the, at the same time, modernization is not easy and, and adds more challenges. Well, lots of comp plans are going to be reworked now for this year and next year. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. And check out his reporter's notebook at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. 
How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, 
Let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the the art of of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not... my mind to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.